All right. Hey, everybody. It's good to see you. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the Summit. This is not the way I normally introduce a sermon, but we had a uh, music stand failure. And uh, I'm going to just fix it right now rather than trying to do two things at once. You can think about that wonderful bumper video. It will be another 365-ish days before you see it again. We will use it again next year and for the remainder of the church's existence. I know that dubstep might have gone a little bit out of style in 2012, but we do not care. So, (laughs) with all that said, all right, we'll jump into it. We are finishing our United series. We're going to talk about the mission of the church. We walk through our core values, gospel, community, mission. We're going to be talking about um, the final piece here uh, this evening. Um, And let's talk about Denver. I love Denver. Denver. Denver is not a difficult city to love, I don't think. Um, actually, I feel like those of us who've done life in Denver for any period of time, I just celebrate, celebrated my seven-year anniversary in Denver, is you actually become kind of a snob about Denver, where you interact with people who aren't from Denver, and you start, you know, you almost have to, like, check yourself not to be totally obnoxious as they're talking about, like, we got a new coffee shop, and I'm like, we have 20 of those every week. Stop it. Our city's better than yours. Why are you even trying to compete with us? Because Denver is, like, the best place in the country. And, uh, you know, one of the things I even love about Denver is how much people in Denver love being in Denver. But I think as you spend time here, and again, I've been reflecting on this, particularly hitting my seven-year anniversary of living in this city, is I think that the things that you initially love about Denver quickly wear off, right? So people move to Denver, and they love Denver because why? Like, there's the mountains. But, you know, you live here, and even like two or three weeks in, I don't know if this is like blasphemous to say, but you kind of forget the mountains are even there, right? Like there's just, you're like getting to work or you're doing whatever it is you need to do and you're kind of like, oh yeah, yeah, those things are over there. Okay, uh, traffic is bad on I-25. I need to uh, hurry or I'm stressed out right now. Um, Or, you know, like people are pumped about all the new restaurants that open up in the neighborhood and that's exciting at first until you're like, wait, I can't afford to eat at any of these places, right? Like, like this is my grocery budget for the month to be able to eat at this one place. I'm not going to be able to uh, do that. And a lot of times the new places replace old places, and I like the old places a lot more. I'm not going to name any names, but I'm just saying, like, there's a number of times where you're like, I kind of miss, um, well, I don't want to name any names. So I miss that place. Um, the reason that I love Denver so much, and the reason I hope at the end of this, your love for Denver grows is because of the opportunity, uh, the, I think really the unparalleled opportunity to see the gospel and the mission of God not only survive, but really thrive because we uh, exist in this urban context. Now, let me, let me preface the rest of what I'm going to say with this, of saying I'm going to talk a lot about the city, I'm going to talk a lot about urban life, um, but I'm not trying to come off as an urban snob here, okay? So when even I talk about Denver, uh, I understand, particularly as our church has grown, and this is amazing, uh, our church is not only composed of people who live in Lodo or right around here, uh, but also people come from as far north as really even almost Boulder, as far east as Aurora, as far south as even Parker, as far west as Arvada, Wheat Ridge, and beyond. Our influence has expanded, which that's amazing. And so when I talk about the city, you know, a city historically has been classified as being that which is both dense and diverse. That's the way a historically classified density and diversity. And even as uh, urban Denver has gone through a lot of transition and a real population boom, the density and diversity that used to exclusively exist in downtown Denver has now spread elsewhere from a lot, where, from, from a lot of places where you uh, are living as well, and, and you should be really pumped about that. Thanks be to God. Now, it's interesting, um, if you take a step back, historians and sociologists have tried to answer the question, like, why did Christianity make it? Like, if you take a step back and think critically about Christianity, you have this faith that originated in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, centered around a few dozen people making the audacious claim that a man named Jesus resurrected from the grave. Not only that, but believing that 
was sort of signing your own death certificate. If you believe that Jesus resurrected from the grave and that Jesus alone is God, both the Roman or the Jewish authorities would try to kill you. And not only that, but these first Christians for the first several centuries of Christianity's existence would return uh, the violence with love. They would actually like receive these blows and they actually pray for those people that were killing them. And so think about this a little bit. Like, how did Christianity make it to such an extent that it booms, right? It didn't just survive, but it thrived to such a degree that it became a movement that became the most freely believed expression of spirituality on the whole globe. And the reason you're sitting here in Denver on a Sunday night when there's a million other good things to do in Denver, 2,000 years later on the other side of the globe is an extension of the legacy of these first men and women. How in the world did that happen? That should seem incredibly, incredibly bizarre to us all. And the way that sociologists and historians answer that question is to say, well, really the way that Christianity not only survived but thrived was through its presence and success in cities. This is a little bit surprising because a lot of times for us as Americans, we think of Christianity as sort of this exclusively rural or maybe suburban faith, but actually uh, Christianity was almost entirely urban for the first 250 years of its existence. This is actually just a, a little bit of free historical side note. You can bring this up at a party if the occasion so uh, you know, lends itself to this. But even the word pagan, the word pagan actually comes from a root word that means from the country because for the first several centuries of Christianity's existence, it was incredibly rare to encounter somebody who followed Jesus and didn't live in a city. Isn't that interesting? I think that's just absolutely, absolutely fascinating. But not everybody nerds out on history like I do. I understand. I'm a little lame and you can judge me for it. I understand that. But here's the interesting thing. So we're going to try to wrap our mind around exactly how did this work, and really, um, Act 16, I feel like, is maybe the base, best case study for why did Christianity not only survive but thrive in cities. Now, I'm going to give you one sociologist's answer, kind of his thesis statement about why Christianity did so well in urban context, and then we'll expand and really look at this case study of Act 16 first. But first, let me read you this quote from a guy named Rodney Stark. He wrote a couple books, one called The Rise of Christianity, another called Cities of God, where he was trying to investigate why did Christianity make it. And here was his thesis. He said this, to cities filled with homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And then here's really the, the summation of the entire statement. He says, for what Christians brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture. And this is going to seem a little bit uh, like an exaggerated phrase that I'm about to say, but I think this is actually one of my favorite paragraphs I've ever read because I feel like it captures what we moved to Denver seven years ago to do when we started our church. We weren't first and foremost trying to start an event, an institution. We were trying to start a family, but it was something more than that. We were desiring to start a city within the city. We were desiring to plant a counterculture. We were, desi we were desiring to create a family what puts on display and that people might look from the outside and taste and see the goodness of what life looks like when Jesus Christ is Lord. That's when Christianity has been at its best. That's when Christianity thrived in cities. And I think Acts 16 really elaborates behind the how of how that happened as well as any other portion of the Bible. So we're going to look at this. We're going to see three kind of aspects of why cities uh, are such right places for the gospel to advance and the mission to go forward. So first, what we're going to see is the city and the wealthy, how the cities uh, historically in our own city attract very, very wealthy people, and that presents a really unique opportunity. So in Acts 16, Paul is going into Philippi. In verse 12, what you see is Philippi is described as being a leading city 
uh, in this particular region. What's important to know historically is that this time, Philippi had no church. They did not have any church. They did not have a Bible study. They did not have a city group. They did not have a Panera Bread where like one Christian did a quiet time off in the corner alone. They had nothing whatsoever. And Paul says, I'm going to go into Philippi and I'm going to preach the gospel and I'm going to plant a new church. The first person he encounters in this process of planting a new church is a woman named Lydia. So look with me at verse 13. It says this, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside to the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, what historians believe is that um, the Roman government, uh, which was overseeing Philippi, uh, was highly uh, adverse to expressions of spirituality that undermined their political system that said the emperor is God and should be unquestioned. Uh, Judaism said there's one God. It was monotheistic, so it said there's one God. There's only one God, and the emperor is not him. And consequently, if you were Jewish in Philippi, you weren't actually allowed to pray in there. You would have to be like these ladies who would go out on the outskirts of the city in order to freely practice your faith without fear of persecution. Uh, this leads then to Paul encountering this group of women. You know, he's making his way into the city. These women are on the outside of the city, and they meet on the outskirts, and Paul meets a woman named Lydia. Now, there's six things you need to know about Lydia, and uh, I think she's absolutely absolutely fascinating. One, she's a woman. Uh, I know I'm blowing your mind at this point, but Lydia is a woman, and the reason this is so interesting is because if you study the history of Christianity, both through the scriptures as well as through just history in general, what you find is women are almost always on the front lines of God's mission and movement advancing. Historians and sociologists have tried to wrap their minds around why is this the case? You know what their best answer to this is? Is women historically have always been smarter and more strategic about their lives than men. Um, it's sort of like there's academic findings behind it. And, uh, you know, I guess all I'm saying is this is where it's like I love history. So, ladies, for those of you who are frustrated at men, if it makes you feel any better, apparently it's always been this way. Okay? It's not a modern phenomenon. We're working on it. All right? That's one of our things our church exists. We're challenging men, pushing them to step up. We're working on it. Second, she's a woman. Second, she's rich and influential. She's from the city of Thyatira a seller of purple goods. Now, Thyatira was a nearby city to Philippi, and it was the center of the purple dye trade. Now, uh, to bridge the cultural gap, when you hear purple dye trade, which you should be thinking in our own context, is Louis Vuitton Rolex, right? Like, if you're dealing with the purple dye trade, you are dealing with extremely wealthy people. Purple was the color of royalty, and uh, if you were dealing with this, you had extremely wealthy clients, and you had extremely uh, affluent clients, and you were doing fairly well for yourself. So this woman was very rich, very influential as well. Third, she's spiritual. She's described as being a worshiper of God. Next, this was a common way of referring to a Jew who was searching the Old Testament scriptures, longing for the coming of the Messiah. Fourth, she gets saved. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. It's significant because this is where Paul confronts our own culture. A lot of times in our own culture, it's like, oh, yeah, all that matters is you're spiritual. All that matters is that you believe in God. Paul actually says, no, Lydia, your longings need to find some sort of destination. Your mystery needs to be brought into clarity. You long, you believe in God. But let me tell you who God is very clearly in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he preaches the gospel to her, and she receives it, and she believes it. Fifth, she shares her faith. Verse 15, and after she was baptized in her household as well. So we don't, again, we don't know all the background, but Lydia apparently had a bunch of people living with her. And we're not sure if this was family, if these were friends, if this was an entourage because she was bawling and doing very well for herself. We're not sure, but you know, for any of you who have a big house uh, in or around the city, what happens when you have a big house in or around the city? What do people initially ask you? So you have an extra room? 
think I could stay with you? Think I could crash on your couch for some period of time? Apparently, Lydia had a lot of people in Philippi who were doing this. They had a number of people living with her, and she goes back to her house with the people who were living with her, and she says, you're not going to believe this message I heard from this guy named Paul. I'm going to share it with you as well. And she preaches the gospel to them, and they receive and believe and are baptized as well, which leads us to number six. She's then immediately generous with her wealth. She urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. I love that little like, detail there where she's so insistent upon her generosity, where she's like, come to my house and stay. And it appears that Paul maybe responded with some sort of like, you know, kind of this polite, no, 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 we don't want to put you out. We don't want to be imposed on you. And it's like, where else are you going to stay, Paul? Rather, it's not Airbnb. You're not like pulling up an app and like, well, I'll just stay over. It's like, where else are you going to stay? And she prevailed upon them, like, no, please let me be generous upon you, uh, generous with you. And uh, it's beautiful, right? Because if you study the, the story of Christianity, uh, every church, almost without exception, first began in a house. Like the Summit Church even began in my living room, about seven blocks in that particular direction. And I love how that legacy goes all the way back to the first century with Lydia and Philippi, where the first Philippian church actually met in her living room as well. Now from this then, there's a couple of implications that we see about the city and the wealthy. The first is this, is that cities attract wealthy and influential people. Cities attract wealthy and influential people. This is true in Philippi. This is true in Denver as well. Denver is the largest city within about a 500-mile radius, and we function like a magnet that attracts people who are leaders in their industry, who are trying to make it in their careers, who are trying to make it in education. And, you know, they felt like they maybe killed it in Wyoming. They felt like they maybe killed it in Kansas. And, like, Denver was the place to get to, and that's a number of you. Uh, that that's what brought you to Denver in the first place. And again, if you kind of ever doubted that Denver is full of wealthy people, all you have to do is walk around this neighborhood or the surrounding neighborhoods and look at like new construction, for example. Like, look at something that's being built, look at the for sale sign, look underneath the for sale sign, there's usually a, a, a thing that's holding uh, pamphlets. And you go up, you hold the pa- look at the pamphlet, and the pamphlet tells you how much the house is, and what's the normal rhythm if you've ever done this walking through this particular neighborhood? You, like, grab the pamphlet, and you're like, oh, my gosh. Like, it's like, like, did I just get charged by touching this piece of paper? Like, oh, my, oh, my. Like, what, you know, and then what's the really normal conversation you have with the person you might be walking with? What do people do in order to be able to afford these houses? But they keep building them, right? Like, they don't just sit on the market. They get sold out before the construction is even completed. That's a reflection of the fact that the city is a magnet that attracts very affluent, very successful very talented people, which leads to our second implication. There are incredible gospel opportunities when the rich and the wealthy understand their wealth correctly. Now, this is where kind of in our own cultural moment, it's important to take a step back. And this is just my observation. You can take it or leave it. But my observation is it seems that people in our culture look at those who have wealth and resources as being a lot of times intrinsically evil or bad. Now, This is where our biblical understanding of culture has to shape just sort of our instinctual understanding of culture to say when you read the Bible, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with wealth. You can be wealthy and righteous. You can be wealthy and unrighteous. And sure, there are a lot of people who are wealthy and unrighteous, and they exploited people, manipulated people, took advantage of people in order to obtain their wealth, and they trample over people because money is the bottom line. 
But at the same time, both biblically and historically, and Lydia is a shining example of this, there are people of tremendous influence and wealth who have understood their wealth from a biblical perspective. And Lydia is just such a great example of this, where it's like she gets the gospel, right? Like she, she receives the gospel, and it immediately becomes the lens through which she interprets the incredible resources she's been entrusted with. She understands, I'm not an owner, I'm a steward. That God, the most wealthy entity in the totality of the universe, did not hoard his riches to himself, but instead, out of his sheer, pure grace, lavished his riches upon us, not in just some sort of indistinct way, but through the specific expression of the gift of his son in our place for our sin, so that we might receive true wealth. That is reconciliation back to God. And that transforms her understanding of her stuff, where she very counterculturally loosens her kung fu death grip. She stops saying, this is mine, I earned it, I'm successful, I'm talented, but no, I've been given this. How can I leverage this? And she very practically does it by saying like, hey, you guys trying to plant a church? Why don't you start at my house? You know, I even think like, in the story of the Summit Church, the number of you who have hosted city groups, I think of the number of you who have hosted people in your home who haven't had any place to stay. I think of the people who host people in your home and you don't charge anything because the person can't afford it or charge well below market rate. Why? Because like, you're just trying to be generous. You understand like you have a house, but your house is not your own. You are wealthy and you are leveraging that wealth for the sake of the blessing and the taking care of other people around you. That's countercultural. Culture tells you, use people to get money. And what you're doing is you're using your money to bless people and to advance the mission and movement of God. And God is glorified in the process. And you're showing that wealth isn't intrinsically evil. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And it's simply a continuation of the legacy of Lydia. Now, secondly, the city presents an opportunity for the wealthy. Secondly, the city presents an opportunity for the poor. And I love this because the story swings, the pendulum swings to the opposite end of the social spectrum. And Paul encounters, you know, it's like if he just encountered the most wealthy, most influential woman in the totality of Philippi, now he's going to encounter the opposite, like the slave girl. We don't even get her name. We don't even, we don't even know what her name is. And uh, it's stunning what happens. Verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. Now, Again, this is where history is very helpful, is that if you translate that phrase, uh, spirit of divination, literally, it would say uh, she had a python spirit. Uh, now, you study the context of what's going on there, and apparently in Philippi, you know, every city has uh, competing expressions of spirituality, and some are kind of bizarre, frankly. And uh, in Philippi, there was this expression of spirituality, even a temple, where you would sort of tap into this python-like pagan deity, and it would give you the ability to, like, fortune tell, like, see into the future. And apparently, uh, this woman, this slave girl, is not only demonically oppressed, but she's owned by other people who are exploiting her demonic oppression for the sake of financial gain. And you can see her kind of using this gift. She knows who uh, Paul is, gift in quotes, air quotes, for those of you listening to the podcast. Uh, verse 17, she followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. 
And this she kept doing for many days. So I love that little detail there. Like, and it wasn't just like one time. It was like many days worth of this. Can you imagine this? Like Paul, breakfast, lunch, dinner, trying to go to sleep, eat his oatmeal, whatever it might be. These men are servants of the Most High God. These men are servants of the Most High God. These men are servants of the Most High God. And Paul responds as any, would have, any of us would have responded. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, um, which I love like the humanity of the scene. Like he's just like, enough already. Um, that's actually not what it is. Actually, when you study the word that's used there for annoyed, it's not like, again, you're on traffic on I-25, and you're just like, you know, like, oh my gosh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die here, right? Like, this is a parking lot, and I'm going to die here. It's, it's more like if you've walked through the city, and you've seen an expression of injustice, or somebody who's just without, or somebody who's really hurting, and there's sort of this, like, anger that things shouldn't be this way. You ever felt that before? Like you look at somebody who's exploited, you look at somebody who's marginalized, and you're like, it shouldn't, ugh! Like that's, it's like, a, it's like a holy discontent, this holy frustration between the radical disparity of the way things are and the way things should be. That's what Paul is feeling in this moment. And what does he do? He turned to her and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now, you think everybody would be pumped, right? Like, let's have a parade. This is sweet. She was demonically oppressed, and now she's not. But here is the unfortunate fact, is that when somebody is oppressed, there's always an oppressor. When somebody's marginalized, there's somebody, usually somebody doing the marginalization as well, and that's no exception for this slave girl where she is freed from her spiritual and emotional bondage. And the guys who own her are not pumped about this, right? They're like, actually, I mean, you read for the text yourself, verse 19, when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, you know that line there? They're like, this is really going to hurt our, uh, you know, our online banking statement. Um, they seized Paul and Silas, and they dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, ouch, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison, literally the bowels of the jail, and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, what we see in this scene then are, just like we saw a couple implications for the first point, here's three implications for this point. One... This is an astounding paradox with the city. That is, while the city functions like a magnet that attracts the wealthy and the influential, the city also simultaneously functions like a magnet that attracts people who are poor, people who are marginalized, and people who are oppressed. Um, all you, again, all you have to do to see this kind of uh, bizarre diversity is walk around the neighborhood. You know, again, I live in this neighborhood, and I think about yesterday afternoon, took my uh, oldest daughter for a walk to a, uh, a playground just a few blocks away, and literally, uh, in the shadow of homes, that just were recently built. They were all sold for over $800,000. They all sold before uh, construction was even finished. Uh, you have this playground uh, that's filled with homeless people. And not only that, but a lot of times homeless families even. And there's my daughter playing with three homeless girls while their parents eat the bag lunches provided by the services that simultaneously exist in our neighborhood. It's just this astounding diversity. You have people at the opposite end of the social, spe social spectrum of extreme wealth and extreme poverty all coexisting in the same place. Two, the gospel's meant to transform, then, each layer of a city's culture. And one of the things I love so much about Paul is he doesn't sort of pick and choose his favorites. 
he doesn't go into the city, and he's like, uh, I'm not sure if this slave girl's going to be able to tithe very much. I'm not sure she's really worth the time. I'm not sure she's really worth the effort of going to jail for her. And this is pretty radical, because even in church planting circles, that's what we did. We planted a church, started a new church. People are very strategic, and a lot of times they give these talks, and they talk about going into cities, and like, focus on the difference makers. Focus on the influencers. Focus on the big givers. Focus on the tens. Look for the tens. What does that even mean? Focus on the tens. And it's like, thanks be to God that Paul didn't think that way. Right? Like, it sounds really good as a TED Talk, but like, what's really good news is that like, it's not biblical. And he looks at the slave girl and he's like, you don't have to show me your resume to matter to me. He's like, you're an image bearer. That's way more important than your paycheck. That's way more important than like what letters become behind your name. And do I call you doctor or not? You are an image bearer of the divine. God, in his grace and sovereignty, has bestowed upon you the imago Dei. And consequently then, I will suffer for you if it means your liberation. I will freely share the grace of the gospel to you if it means that you might be reconciled back to the God who fearfully and wonderfully made you. It's like she's like not even on the scale of one to ten in this culture, and yet Paul is willing to risk everything for her. It's beautiful. Third, we see that the implication of this is that serving the marginalized comes at a cost. And again, let me kind of make an observation of our cultural moment that we exist in a culture where I think most people are really pumped about making a difference. I think very few people are pumped about making a difference at any sort of cost to themselves. Right? So like we love being aware of things via documentaries on Netflix. We love social media activism where we tell people about the documentaries we watch on Netflix. But those causes, right? It's like as long as we can change the world within these very defined hours I don't really want to uh, have to lose anything in the process. I would love if I could be like paid to do this as well. That would be fantastic. So I can sort of enjoy the quality of life while I'm changing the world. If suffering comes up, I'm running in the other direction. And it's like nobody changed the world through that mindset. And all the way back in Paul, you know what it means for you to like change the life of somebody who's marginalized? You know what it requires for you to to really redeem the story of who some, somebody who's exploited is you have to incarnate into their suffering. It's like talk to anybody in the city who has been part of foster care. Talk about anybody in our city who's adopted. Talk to anybody in our city who's mentoring at-risk youth and really invested in that relationship. Talk to anybody in our city who's not overlooking homeless people but actually developing meaningful relationships with the homeless men and women who exist in our neighborhood and in and around our church. And if there is any story of redemption whatsoever, I guarantee you with that is a story of suffering. In our generation, a lot of times, as soon as suffering comes up, we're like, nope, nope, God's not calling me here. I'm not going to do it. We even spiritualize it. It's like, what? Like, what was required in order for the slave girl to be liberated? What happened? Paul had to willingly enter into and receive chains upon himself. Like, this is substitutionary incarnational love. In order for the slave girl to be free, Paul has to go into prison. Where do you think Paul got an idea like that? Like, all he's doing is reflecting the love of Jesus that's been extended to him. He dies so that we might live. Paul's saying, it's not only saved me, but it sends me, and it's the lens through which I understand being sent to the people around me as well. 
Third, with all this, the wealthy, the poor. Third, the city offers this unique opportunity for diversity as well, this unique opportunity for diversity. So look at verse 25. I love Paul's in prison with Silas, some other leaders, and he's not freaking out. He's actually having a good old-fashioned karaoke hymn sing uh, in the jail. I'm sure everybody was just like, what the heck is going on here? Uh, I love this. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them because it's like, what else are they going to do? They don't know the words, right? It's like, have you ever been to church and like the band is leading, but we forget to put the words up and they're like, uh-huh, mm-hmm, uh, yeah, I'll just listen. Um, that's basically what's going on here, right? It's like, these guys know the words. We don't know the words. Um, verse 26, and suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. Now, the reason for this is because the Roman judicial system worked in a way that the person who was the prison guard was responsible with his own life for the lives of his prisoners. So if the prisoners escape with their lives, the prison guard has to pay for that with his own life. And not only that, but you're going to be tortured and it was going to be terrible. The prison guard recognizing this is like, what's much more preferable is that I kill myself as opposed to having the Roman higher-ups torture me uh, in the process of me dying. And he's about to impale himself with his own sword when he hears from the darkness a cry to stop. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Now, this is stunning, right? Because it's like, again, we exist in a culture where a lot of times what's said is like, safety is the most important thing, isn't it? Like, like, if you can get away with your life, from, like, go. But Paul, we talked about this last week, had a different lens through which he interpreted his life. And no, actually, what's more important than my own life, what's worth me even dying for is the advancement of the gospel. And Paul sees this moment as a gospel opportunity unlike any other. And rather than running towards the open door, he runs back to the person who imprisoned him to see if he might give him the gift of eternal life. And this guy's, like, stunned by it, Right? Because, like, who thinks this way? Like, actually, if you look at what happens next in verse 29, the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, right? It's like one of those moments that's so radically sacrificial, he's freaked out. He's not like, that's really sweet. He's like, what is going on right now? He trembled with fear and fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of God to him and to all who were in his house. Verse 33. I'm getting goosebumps before verse 33. You can't see it because I'm wearing long sleeves right now. Verse 33. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Oh, the reconciliation the gospel brings, right? Like this guy who is systemically oppressing these people, all of a sudden they are reconciled back to be brothers and the fact that the oppressor is washing the wounds of the oppressed. Oh my gosh. Verse 34, and he brought them up into his house and set foot before them and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Now we'll hit verse 35 through 39. We won't read this again. What happens in verses 35 through 39 is the Philippian uh, government recognizes, oh crap, Uh, Paul was a Roman citizen, uh, and even back then, it was a big no-no. You do not take a Roman citizen, uh, you know, just throw him in a jail and beat him. They they deserved due process, and they're like, oh, crap, we're going to be in big trouble. And so what do they do in uh, verse 39? They came and apologized to them. I love It's like, what do you say? Like, we're sorry we tortured you. Like, like, what does that apology even look like? I don't know, but like, we're sorry. 
And they took them out and asked them to leave the city. We're sorry, can you leave? Um, and then verse 40, so they went out to the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Now, in all of Acts 16, verse 40 is my favorite because it gets not only that a church was planted in Philippi, but a diverse church was planted in Philippi. And actually, a diverse church that's so beautifully bizarre is the only explanation for an outsider to look in and wrap his mind around what's going on is that God stepped in and moved. So you take a step back historically. It's interesting. Paul, before he was Paul, was Saul. And Saul was a Pharisee. And Pharisees in the first century, uh, and really around that time, they would, every single morning, wake up and they would pray a prayer that was incredibly politically incorrect, but it was very popular of the day. They would wake up and they would pray the prayer and they would say this, God, I thank you that you have not made me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. That was the normal pharisaical prayer of the day. And you know what's really interesting? Is that Saul is transformed into Paul. The Pharisee is transformed into a church planner. He actually goes into cities like Philippi and plants churches. And who are the first three members of the Philippian church? A woman, a slave, a Gentile jailer. And what's planted in the city is not just a church, but a kind of church that's so astoundingly, beautifully diverse that from the outside, the only explanation is that God stepped in and moved. Like, how else do you explain the Pharisee planting a church that's composed of the very people that he once prayed daily that he was not, that gave thanks to God that he was not like? And historically, the church has been at its best when we've been this kind of church, diverse generationally, diverse ethnically, a reflection of the broader kingdom of God where in heaven every tribe tongue and nation will proclaim the excellencies of who our Lord Jesus Christ is. And it's like the opportunity is afforded to us in Denver as well. The nations have come here. It's like I just think about this past week. It's like I have an Uber driver from North Africa and hear his entire story. And it's like I came here for opportunity. You think about your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, the nations have flocked to Denver, and not only that, but we have the opportunity to have Denver be a launching pad to reach the nations as well. And it's like God, by your kindness and grace and spirit, create this type of church at the summit. So what are we praying? We've done this at the end of each part of the United series. What are we explicitly asking God for? I'll hit this quickly, and then we'll, we'll pray. So one, like what we're seeing happen in this scene, if I could put it in a single sentence, is we're seeing holistic reconciliation. Philippian church, we're seeing holistic reconciliation, both local and global, both vertical with God and horizontal with one another. A lot of times what happens is when people try to understand kind of what is the church's responsibility for reconciliation, we put these various things at odds, right? Like we're going to care about our neighbor, we're going to care about the person at the very ends of the earth. Are we going to care about reconciliation between people and God, like personal salvation? Are we going to care about reconciliation between person and person through the vehicle of social justice? When people are trying to pit one versus the other, I think of an old C.S. Lewis quote where C.S. Lewis said a lot of times these false dichotomies arise, and it's like asking the question, which pair on a blade of scissors is most necessary to cut a piece of paper? Does that make sense? Some of you are looking at me with blank faces. I thought, it was, I thought when he said it, it was pretty profound, but I didn't even get anything. So um, <laughs> it's okay. I, um, you're throwing shade at C.S. Lewis, not me, so it doesn't hurt my feelings. Um, <clears throat> so in light of this, we want to pray three things. One, God, reconcile me back to you. 
And so I understand that before we like talk about the cause of the gospel, some of you need to receive the gospel. Some of you, like the Philippian jailer, need to ask the question, God, what is it that I must do in order to be saved? And this is where we have people in the back ready to receive you for prayer in our time of response, and they'd love you, like, ask the question, what do I need to be saved? And you have people that are willing and eager to walk you through those next steps. Secondly, God, use me to reconcile others back to you. And so even as I think about the year 2018, what I want to challenge you to do is to think about, I've been entrusted with a sphere of influence, right? I've got friends, neighbors, coworkers, people I do hobbies alongside. Those aren't just random occurrences. Those are people under the sovereignty of God who've been pointed uh, to your care, to your shepherding care. Like, God, who are like maybe one or two people, even in the year 2018, I want to be praying and actively moving towards to see reconciliation happening between you and him. Send, send me. Send me as an ambassador of you. And three, God, use me to reconcile others back to one another as well. We want to be agents of reconciliation, not just between people and God, but we want that truth to spill into people's relationships between one another. And in an age of division, in a time in our city where it's tremendously fractured, what we need the people of the Summit Church to be are agents of reconciliation in their neighborhoods and communities. We need the people of the Summit Church to know how to meaningfully, lovingly engage the people that don't look like them. The people on their blocks who might not even speak the same language as them. People are scared. Culture is fractured. And for such a time as this, the church exists. And it's like we're asking God by his grace that he would increasingly diversify us generationally. He would increasingly diversify us ethnically so that we might more faithfully reflect the larger beauty and supremacy of the kingdom of God. But that doesn't happen without you. (laughs) And like without you engaging our city and without you diversifying your dinner table and without you diversifying your life as well, we're in this together. So with all that said, let's pray. And then we'll talk about some ways to respond. God, we thank you so much for who it is that you are and what it is that you've done. And uh, we pray that you would do this through our church in 2018. We thank you for this annual series of our vision and what we're asking you to do. And I pray that in this time, by the power of your spirit, you would produce within us, um, for those who don't know you, by the power of your spirit, just a, a conviction of heart to say, like, God, I want to be, be reconciled uh, back to you. And even have the courage to say, like, I want to talk to somebody about that. I want to go back and talk to somebody about that. Uh, Secondly, God, I pray that we would be ambassadors that would help see the people in our care uh, be reconciled to you as well, Uh, that you would send us and we would understand even as we leave these doors uh, this evening and we go to our uh, normal ebb and flow of the week, uh, we're not just going to work, we're not just going to watch our kids, we're not just going to work out at gyms, we are sent as ambassadors. And God, that we would take that responsibility seriously and even uh, for each of us, there would be one to two people we're thinking about praying for uh, meaningfully engaging Uh, to see the work of the gospel spill into their lives. And third, God, I pray um, that you would do a work of reconciliation uh, between person and person in our city and through the Summit Church, where the only explanation is that you would have stepped in and moved. Uh, This is the area of ministry that I feel most burdened, but also most helpless, and there's some sort of confidence there that that's the area where you move the greatest. Um, And God, even tasting and seeing... um, the goodness of the diversified life, the goodness of the diversified family, um, I think of my own immediate family and how you have made me more fully human uh, through the gift of the people you have placed under my roof. I pray uh, this would increase and abound under this roof as well. Uh, 
and that we would see the Summit Church better reflect this neighborhood, better reflect this community, better reflect this city, better reflect your kingdom for your fame and for our joy and sanctification. God, please do this, and we ask all these things in your name. Amen.